seasoned sports fan teams up with a millennial, opinions may vary, but the debates assuredly won't disappoint. Check your sources. It's the report, old report. Here's your hosts, John Lund and Al Renato. Yes, indeed. Hello, everyone. I'm John Lund alongside Al Renato, a.k.a. as New York sports radio fans know him, the great Al from White Plains, and this is New Report, Old Report, here on Tuesday, March 26th from 8 to 9 Eastern Time, live on Sports Radio America. If you missed the live show, you can catch the replay all week, also at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, or find the show as bonus content under the Bridge Sports Podcast which you can find by searching for The Bridge Sports Podcast on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or Spotify, really wherever you get your podcasts, as well as at LondonBridge.com. If you want to interact with the show, you can text in a question, comment, or complaint to 929-274-3437. Or if you're brave enough, leave a voicemail with the same and we'll play what you have to say on air again by calling 929-274-3437. This week, Duke somehow survives... And Gronk retires. Check your sources. We're off. Now, what would be the odds that that was happening again, that that wasn't a new report? Was that a new report or an old report? That's what I'm asking. Is that a new report? We don't know. Well, Al, another exciting week of athletics. March Madness is here. We're in it. Upsets. Not many this year. A little chalky in the tournament. Nothing wrong with that. Very exciting games. Unfortunately, one of them was with the team I root for. We don't need that type of excitement in the round of 32, Al, but it came anyway in the form of UCF Duke. We'll go through the bracket. We'll hit all the teams that made the Sweet 16 and punch that ticket. But as a Duke fan, when I mentioned to you before the show, I don't know if it's going to come within this show, but the huge exhale still hasn't quite come yet. What a game. Survive in advance, as they say. I'm still shocked at the ending, but it is nice that we're moving on for one more game at least. Well... First of all, hello, Johnny, and uh, I, I'd like to say I'm happy for you. Uh, I'd like to say that, but of course I'm not. Uh, for America and for the tournament, it is probably the best thing that uh, your dreaded dookie pukey uh, Blue Devils survived and advanced. And as everybody knows who follows this tournament, the old saying goes that there is usually that one spot that one game, that one half, whatever the case may be, where the road to the championship hits a big pothole, uh, takes a turn where you get lost, uh, where you can't find your way. The question is, can you find your way back? Well, yesterday we saw a tremendous game, not solely because of how well played it was, but because of the pendulum Going back and forth and back and forth three, four different times. You thought that your beloved Blue Devils had this game under control, back up to eight, nine, and it looked like that was all she wrote. And lo and behold, here comes UCF one more time, led by the coach's son, your 
legendary coach's first grade player, Johnny Dawkins, coaching UCF folks, and his son, Aubrey Dawkins, who was uh, an older college kid because of transfers and injuries, medical red shirts, etc., has an absolute game for the ages where he carries his team on his back and lo and behold, off a Trey Jones miss, who they dared to shoot all night from three, they have a four-point lead and the ball. And my question to you, young man, is what did you think right then and there as the ball was in the hands of the UCF point guard trying to patrol his way along the sideline and being bumped and shoved and pushed and fouled two or three different times up that sideline as he went to make that two-on-one lob pass for what could have been a six-point lead. Well, the good thing is, at least for my soul and fandom and feelings, I didn't see that play happen. Of course not. Because of course not. I was working none last of the, night. None of the Duke fans saw no. that play. Nobody saw that, nobody saw that foul that wasn't called. I was working last night for Westwood One to get the highlights together for the good people of America after and during these games. So during that specific play, I was cutting something up for the Virginia Tech Liberty game, and the gentleman I was sharing the studio with went, oh, my God, they just missed an alley-oop. And I said, what was UCF doing throwing an alley-oop? Seeing the play back, I understand it. Yeah, it, it, it was not a full, uh, yeah, it, you know, an alley-oop. I wouldn't even call it an alley-oop. I mean, it was a two-on-one where he was wide, 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 wide open. Up, you know, not a high arc. Yeah. It was a little bit behind him, maybe a little hard, but, you know, I, I, they could have pulled it out. They could have, he could have continued on the dribble with the two-on-one. Well, answer your Seth question. Gre- Seth That's Greenberg the game. says, Seth Greenberg says, pull it out. That's the game. Pull it out, need some clock. Right. That's the game. At that point, you're in panic mode. You're in we need a miracle to happen mode. And especially if that basket goes down. I mean, that's that's basically it. Now you're in we're going to need a desperation three-pointer to fall. You assume that Coach K, as most college coaches go after that shot gets hit, call timeout, try to regroup. But at that point, UCF has the momentum. It did also swing a little bit, and it, it was very difficult to make this call. I can understand why they kept it upheld. The renowned, as it's been, at least in, in Duke lore, the shot clock violation that wasn't. Pretty close well, I, to call. I, 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 it's clearly, you know, whatever the call was on the court's got to stand. Right. That's what I thought for it, too. It was too... It was too minuscule. What's funny, too, is we have all this technology in sports, and I understand it would probably take some time, but it's interesting that arcade shot put games, Papa Shot, can sense when a ball goes through a basket to give you the score during the Papa Shot game, and the rims in the NCAA can't get sensors or cameras or some sort of system to know when the ball has touched the rim to cue up the shot clock. And we know, 
Could you imagine them going through that technology? Like how bad shot clock problems are now, where sometimes baskets, it, it counts the other direction. They have to sometimes wheel in a spare basket from another gym because the shot clock doesn't work, or they have to do the shot clock on the floor, and, and somebody has to manually do it. We've had shot clock problems since the institution of it. Just a little uh, interesting have, that we, we can't get the the ball has hit the rim, we can tell based on the sensory technology we have. But that's for well, another show. Well, look, there are only so many angles you have, and they slowed it down uh, to the extent of the Zapruder film. They did a great job with it. They had a bunch of different angles, but you still couldn't tell without a doubt. You know, because I, I thought it hit, and then I saw one angle where I, I thought it didn't hit. But I never saw, as Gene Steratore talked about, you never saw the bottom of the ball right. to tell us whether or not it unequivocally did not graze the rim. And it took but so that's long, the case. so the, long the, again with these replays. Well, they, they, that's, they want to make sure. They want to absolutely make sure that what they are calling is, after all the numerous looks they have, the best possible solution to the situation. Now, I thought that they made uh, the correct ruling. Uh, regardless who you're rooting for, it was not, in my mind, and what I saw, unequivocal, that it did or didn't touch the ring. So, to me, whatever the call was on the court was called an stand. And they played right through it. Everybody played as though there was no whistle, that there was no foul, that there was no uh, shot clock violation. Uh, if, if you watch the replay, you'll see what exactly what happened is that Dawkins got the ball, went up with it, got hammered. I think by Reddish or, uh, uh, or number 12, whose name I can never pronounce, um, who committed the hook and hole that wasn't called. Uh, I'm pretty sure it, it was it was him or Reddish who hammered Dawkins. So they both played through it. And it wound up with the big guy who, of course, dunked it without even putting his feet. So... I think that went where it was supposed to go. The big turn is the four potential six to instantly one because as soon as Cam Reddish takes that shot, you know it's going in. You know it's going in. They go behind the screen. All of a sudden it's one in a heartbeat instead of six. But they get fouled. They make the two free throws, and they're in great shape. But what I am a little – all the experts, experts this morning said, well, you know, after Zion misses the three and they get it back and he goes through, oh, just get out of his way. Just get out of it. It, it. All of a sudden, let me just stop doing everything I've been known to do, which is defend and work hard. Let me just get out of the way and give him a dunk. They played him perfectly, absolutely perfectly. They played him on his shoulder so when he turned, he committed what was probably a charge, but they let the bullet in China shop get away with it. Now it's him and against the big guy. And the big guy sticks his arm. We well, want to get out of the way. And, and all of a sudden think, well, let me be the man. He sticks his arm straight up in the air. Zion plows in. And they give it in one. You know, I, I mean, I, I can't blame the kid. You know, he, he stood tall. Principles of verticality. Verticality. Zion jumps right into him. They still call the foul, and he goes to foul line, and, and he leaves. The, you know, he gags on the free throw. He short arms the foul shot. You know, Barrett pushes Aubrey Dawkins underneath with two hands. At number twelve hooks and holds, and so there's Barrett wide open underneath with the lay to take the lead. So you have five different things happen there, all falling in Duke's favor. 
uh, three of them having to do with the referees. And, you know, it played out all in their favor. And then down the court, the other end, probably gets followed on their way to the rack. Play on. Okay. You know, swallow the whistle. And there's Dawkins again for what could have been a great fairy tale ending. Instead, the Cinderella story turns into the pumpkin. And the player who carried the team on his back, the coach's son, who has an absolute brilliant, epic performance, is involved in all three of those last plays. And all three of them turn against the lobby couldn't hang on to, the rebound he didn't get because of the two-hand push in the back, and the tipping. So the game that he would want to live forever, he will now never be able to forget. I can't argue that it's not heartbreaking. <laughs> not only for Aubrey Dawkins, who grew up for, as a with a little bit of Duke in his blood, and then as he got older and had the opportunities, probably thought, how cool would it be to play Duke, to play against my father's former team, to play against Coach K, who's been a figure in my life throughout all of it, finally gets that opportunity and takes 100% advantage of it. I believe he came in averaging 15 or 16 points. He had that within the first, it seemed like, 10 minutes of the, of the first half. Unbelievable to come out that hot and know, hey, this is going to be my game. It's my time. I'm doing this for dad. I'm doing this for me. I'm doing this for the UCF fans. And I'm going to go out there and, and light it up. And it was an incredible performance. It's something we love to see in this tournament. Performances like that from sometimes unlikely heroes. And you to do rarely it Duke, see a guy great. scalding for an entire game. Right. Everything he threw up, you knew it was going in. Everything. And for UCF, that was kind of commonplace, too. They were hitting a lot of in-rhythm shots, no fear. As you mentioned, Taco would get switched on to Trey Jones. I mean, he's standing in the middle of the paint, just daring him to shoot. And Trey did. He went one for eight from three. Didn't have it at all. It was an incredible game plan that they used to flip that switch on and and use that against Duke. I don't think another team can do it to that extent, obviously, because not every team has a 7-6 center. But to know that that was a huge weakness and that it would be so tempting to shoot every time, if Trey's not on, it works to perfection. And that's exactly what we saw. They couldn't have drawn up a better game plan just in general to throw Duke off their rhythm. And then all of a sudden, Zion decides he's flipping the switch. There's been a lot of college players that we've seen do this and or try to do this, especially in the tournament where it's, I'm not losing this game. And you love to see it even when it doesn't work for a lot of teams. That senior, and it's usually a senior, the junior, the guy that you know, he's been there a long time, the Adam Morrisons of the world to go back a little bit. Jerry McNamara's of the world, we're not losing this game. And that's kind of what Zion did. To break down the last several plays, which I did get to see and watch over and over again, and I'm still not sure how the follow-up didn't go down. The first shot on Trey Jones should have went down. A great look to that point in the game. 
but the follow-up, I, I, I have no idea how it didn't go down. And Duke people, you can flash back to even this season, the Wake Forest game. Same of course. Thing. You could go to last year's Kansas game. Grayson Allen shot, bounced around the rim 20 times before so, yep, falling somehow out. Stayed out. Go to overtime and lose. We could even go back to Butler, Gordon Hayward, and almost went in. That prayer bank shot that would have would have had a champion that no one expected. So they've been on the wrong end positive end, as, as most teams have. As you mentioned, if, if that bucket falls, the alley-oop, it's, it's a completely different game. Cam Reddish comes out of nowhere, and he's actually been doing this at decent points of the season when the team's down or it's tied or they're like leading by just one possession. He does have a better three-point field goal percentage in those moments. He didn't have a great game, but we needed that shot. He is a very streaky player. Uh, Cam Reddish is one of those guys who has a great skill set. He has a, a wonderful stroke, but you never really see him play an entire game the way Aubrey Dawkins played the entire game last night. You never see Cam Reddish on fire for a game. And look, that's hard to do. But, but the point is, that's why he rarely has a great game. Because most of the time when I see him, he'll be on fire for a half. It's the first half. It doesn't continue in the second half. Or he'll have a quiet first half and catch fire in the second half. You know, the ability is completely there. Uh, the stroke is there. Uh, as well as the athleticism and the length to really get his shot off whenever uh, and, and wherever he wants. He has a tendency to get himself in charge trouble where he'll take two or three uh, and then commit a nickel dimer like he did yesterday uh, where he picked up a bad second foul. Uh, it wasn't a bad play, but he tried to block a three it was a questionable call, but it was a risky play. When you're out defending that far on the three, do you really have to try and block it? And as a result, he picked up his second foul, uh, which required him to sit down. And then he picked up his third foul, uh, I believe, early in the second half, if memory serves me correct. But the point is, uh, he is really an interesting player because of how much skill he has and ability he has and he's the type of player that you know, you're just waiting for the explosion it, where is the 38 point gonna, game going to come is the 42 point game going to come you're kind of hard considering because he's playing with Zion and Barrett but you see him almost in like the for lack of a better term the Clay Thompson role right. for Duke Right. Where the skill set is mammoth, he's a, ter- he's a terrific defender. He might be, other than Jones, their best defender right? um, because of his length and I think his focus. I think Barrett falls asleep on defense, gets his feet crossed a lot. Uh, Zion has we're, a tendency. We're going to get to RJ falling asleep in a couple minutes. We'll get there. Continue. Zion has a tendency to get his feet crossed and, and play people from the side and, and try and, you know, get their hand on them and, and uh, get away with little push, little, little pushes and shoves. And Reddish seems to be the guy who's the most consistent, other than Jones, of 
anymore. She's not ball. Very good defender. You know, taking the, the point guards. But I, I think that Radish is that is that third guy, and you know he will not be afraid to take the shot, as we saw at the end of the Florida State game uh, when Barrett was out and he buried that. So he has the ability. It's just sometimes it just comes in, in these spurts. Sometimes because he doesn't touch the ball because of the other two guys. Um, but he hit the biggest shot of the game yesterday. So we get that. End up down three, and Zion kind of just goes into gear. Took that three-pointer. I didn't necessarily hate it. The risk with that, though, is the miss, which ended up happening. The other team gets the rebound. Now you're really in trouble. Thankfully, it goes back to Duke, and then they, they start him and Han with precious seconds going off the clock. It seemed like they wanted to get another three. They didn't really know what offense to run. Zion's calling people, moving people around, clearing out. Time's a waste in here. If they miss this next shot, whatever it is, and UCF gets the ball, it's basically over again. You've got to advance the ball. We're going to be in trouble. He just decides to drive. What's interesting about the UCF defender going down is I think it made Zion's move to the basket slightly easier than it would have been had he not fallen. Because he goes down and that allows Zion to spin and square up in a sense where it's just him and Taco fall one-on-one. You didn't have the double team. You didn't have forcing him to a specific side. And I don't blame him for going down, trying to get the follow call. I thought you had to call something that didn't look like incidental contact for it to be a no call at all. Obviously, as a Duke fan, you know, you think that's a, that's a block. We've seen that charge call against Duke But here's the point. If they call the foul, you're worse off. True. You're down three shooting a one-and-one. One right. With him at the line. True. The best case scenario for you is exactly what happened. The no call, then the call. I did think... It was a foul, but I didn't think it was egregious as you might think it would be. I thought he did a great job of staying vertical, as you mentioned. It was after a Zion like double pump where that's when he brings the arm down. I actually thought, and you know, you see still shots, you see replays. I thought there was another instance in the game where they both went up and Taco got him worse than he did the last one. I don't know if it was a makeup call. It would have not been good because oh, it was a lot four, earlier in the four, game. His fourth, his fourth foul was not a foul. His fourth foul, he didn't touch anybody. Didn't look great. Taco's fourth foul, all, all, all the, that was another Zion. Was uh, that the reach in on the rebound? Where the ball was kind of loose. Right. And he just reached over and batted it, didn't touch anybody. I think. And I, I obviously don't know this from a seven-six person, but as a somewhat tall person, I remember from playing. Whenever you bring your arms down, you're almost begging the officials to call foul for whatever reason that is. Even if you get all ball, when they see your arm go well, down, that, they love but, to. But call. All, all, on, on this fourth one, all he did was bat a loose ball. Yeah, that ball one was. Even, nobody even had possession of the ball, right. so that that, that was one a tough was one. really that was a tough one. I think there were a couple others where it, they let him go. 
The fourth one was a tough one. So look, we make you know, calls. Calls come. Calls go. There's going to be bad calls in, you know, in games, but you know, come crunch time, you need to have consistent and proper calls. And I thought crunch time, every call uh, went the wrong way for UCF. As I said, after the the miss by Jones, uh, I believe it was Taylor's got the ball uh, going down the left sideline, and he's getting ridden. Very hard by one or two Duke guys. Clearly a foul. I don't know. They may have been trying to foul. I'm not sure. It almost looked like they were trying to foul. But then he, he clears himself and he gets across half court and makes the lap pass to Dawkins, who just – it was a little timing. It was a touch off. It was a little bit behind him. But you know, the, the way he had played the entire game, you're, you're shocked that he doesn't clean that up. And then the Reddish three – the two free throws to go up three, the miss three, the offensive rebound, in you go, no call whatsoever. Like I said, even if they call a block there and Zion's at the line for one and one plus you know, 20, 22 seconds to go, they're in the driver's seat. And Taco's still because, in the game. He can you know, get the you're going to get the ball back somehow, some way, they're right. going to have to foul. I would say, as for the last play, I didn't see the R.J. Barrett push to be follow-worthy. I think if it was harder, we would have saw a reaction from Aubrey Dawkins. Well, you did. He turned around to the referee and gave this, you know, the, the signal with, with both hands. You didn't see it. A- after the basket, he turned around to the referee. He's going, push, push, push. And then you had the hook and hold on the other side yeah, of the lane. Javin Delorier, with, there's, there's your pronunciation for you. That was that was a foul, and I don't know how they missed that because that's what it's you're reviewable. looking at when when it goes up, and it's reviewable, which I didn't know until yesterday. I'm shocked as well that nobody nobody got the coach's attention for it because that would have been that's a game changer. In the heat of the moment, with 15 seconds to go, okay, if they review that, you think they're actually going to call it? They've called it all year. I've seen them stop games, review it, and, you know, quite frankly, it's bullshit, number one. It's total bullshit that that is a free throw and possession. Yeah, the, the penalty it's, is far too much for the foul. The penalty so. is egregious. I mean, call a foul, it, that's fine, but we don't need to, to make every, every possible negative thing happen for, from it. No. And, and, absolutely, absolutely ridiculous. And every time I've seen it, I've said it. But in the meantime, there it was. And there was absolutely no chance of it being called in the first place or on a review and a replay. And I, I, I see, I don't like when stuff gets called on replay. I don't like when we have flagrant fouls on replay. I don't like when we take 10 minutes to review as to whether or not, you know, it was a, a basketball play. Now, if you can't tell it's a basketball play or nothing, you shouldn't be doing the damn game to begin with. That's the way I look at it. You know, I used to referee with two people. When I was refereeing, it was, it was two guys, not three. And I ref some pretty high-level guys. Um, and, yeah, you miss stuff. But the point is, you know, if you need to look at something for five minutes as to whether or not it was a flagrant foul or not, you, you, know, you shouldn't be out there. But the – Rule on that has been enforced all year long, and 
whether they chose to ignore it, whether they chose to, at that point in the game just play on, you know, no notion of review. How did they all miss it? You know, sometimes things just have a way of working out. And sometimes things have a way of working out for a certain team. And I think a lot of people will think that this is just another one of those times where things had a way of working out for the Duke Blue Devils. They move on. They survive. They advance. And we have all four regionals almost, almost intact from one to four. Uh, Rock Chalk Jayhawk being the noticeable exception, no pun intended. Uh, that breaks up the chalk uh, with Auburn blowing them out and playing absolutely fabulous basketball in the first two rounds of this tournament. So round and round we go. All the ones are alive. All the twos are alive. All the threes are alive. Makes for what hopefully will be a better Thursday and Friday night than Saturday night. Because Saturday night was one of the worst nights in tournament history. Let's take a quick break to pay the bills. He's Al Renato. I'm John Lund. We'll be right back with the new report, old report here on Sports Radio America. We welcome you back. I'm John Lund. He's Al Renato, and this is the new report, old report. For the upset factor, the Cinderella factor, that wasn't the case at all and only showed up in the UCF game, which looking at the UCF team being on a national stage, they weren't half bad of a team. They played their best basketball of the year in the most important game, and they came within inches of winning that basketball game and and giving us one that we'll talk about for at least until this upcoming weekend, but that could be one of the top games, if not the top game of the tournament. And it now begs the question, if that survival changes your opinion on how far you think Duke can go in this tournament no, and overall no. for the, the teams no. that have advanced, does anything not change for who you think is going to make the final four? Not, seven? Not, not, not for a heartbeat. You know, I, I believe as I started this program that most of the time you'll be on the way to a championship. You will have one of those. Now Duke is not a perfect team. As, as we started to say earlier, Coach Dawkins really did a brilliant job of coaching uh, from a strategic point of view. He pushed them out. They got very little uh, inside other than, you know, Zion, who at times is unstoppable. You know, and when Taco's out of the game, uh, there's no matchup for him in there. When he was in the game, he didn't get much inside. He got rejected. Um, and there was more size in there, but without him, they really don't have a center. So it made scoring. And, and remember, a lot of Zion's stuff was off second shots because of his quickness, his ability to regather and sometimes off the second bounce, get up faster than anybody else, which is remarkable. And his footwork inside uh, allowed him, whether it was off the offensive rebound, whether it was off uh, the reverse pivot, whether it was off the drop step, etc., cetera, uh, he did get some stuff inside. But for the most part, they pushed them out and made them beat them from three. Reddish is up and down. Barrett didn't have a great game. We know Trey Jones can't put it in the ocean. He did hit one big one uh, after shooting blanks, I think, on his first six. 
And, you know, his last one, you wanted to run and hide because, you know, that was almost the ball game. That's what led to the run out and almost the six-point lead. So the strategy was very good. A couple times they couldn't clean up the defensive boards, which led to second shots, most notably in those last few possessions, which were killers. But I thought they played them exactly the way you have to play them. They just didn't finish. Now, what will a better team do? A better team may not have anything to go through another kind of game that I'll be talking to. That's a tough game to duplicate for anybody, no matter how good you are. Because he didn't just make shots, he made difficult shots. And he made a lot of them from three-point range. He made a lot of them with hands in his face, with a hand in his face, all at key spots. Shot clock running down, tight games, tight spots in the game. Those are tough shots for anybody to make, no matter how good you are. So, um, and quite frankly, I don't think Michigan State has one player who can make those shots. Not one. Winston's a terrific point guard, but he's not a shot maker. I don't think he makes those shots. So, and, and I think, you know, to me, the spoiler in that bracket, if you want to call him a spoiler, for Duke would be LSU, because I think LSU is a better matchup for them uh, physically. I don't think Michigan State can play with Duke. I really don't, no matter what anybody says. Um, I think LSU can beat Michigan State. I don't know if they have it in them to play 40 minutes with Duke. 30, 28, 32, 40, 40 tough. Because Duke's very well coached. They have a good staff. Um, their basketball players have an understanding of the game. Uh, their best player is very conscious of what has to be done and when it has to be done. He knows how to get in advantageous places on the floor to do his most damage. So that is problematic for anyone that they will play. And I think LSU is physically the best matchup for them. Uh, but I don't think they can go 40 minutes. And I don't think Michigan State can even stay on the court with them. I really don't. I don't think Michigan State has the firepower. You can't beat Duke. You're not, you're not going to hold, you're not going to beat them in the fifties. Not going to beat them in the fifties. You're not going to beat them 55 to 52. She's not going to do it. Too many weapons. Too many weapons. Um, so it doesn't change my thought process for a second in the East. Nothing I have seen so far, uh, has really given me any food for thought anywhere else. Uh, I, my pick was North Carolina to win the whole thing. My pick is still North Carolina to win the whole thing. Um, you know, we don't know what could happen with the Washington kid for Kentucky. Uh, that just strengthens my thoughts on North Carolina. Uh, Tennessee we've talked about is that team where you want to say yes, that, you know, can they ever string three or four teams, three or four games together? Well, you know, <laughs> they couldn't even string two together. You know, they're one and a half, and then they fall right. apart in the second half, and then they blow a 20-plus point lead to Iowa and then put it away in overtime. I mean, you're not going to get away with with playing one half of basketball in this next round. You're not going to do it. You know, you, the, the competition is up higher now. So 
you know, can Tennessee beat Virginia? Absolutely. Um, they can't do it by playing a half, though. Got to play a full game. And I like I, I, I like Tennessee. I think they're a good team. Um, they have the best name in the tournament with Admiral Schofield, no doubt about it. But again, Rick Barnes in a big spot. 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 Yeah. Willie spit the bit like he always does. Uh, can his kids overcome? We'll see because, you know, Virginia's in the same boat. You know, so that would be a very interesting matchup. You know, a coach who does have one Final Four under his belt uh, against a coach uh, who still hasn't gotten there, who still is very highly thought of as one of the best coaches in the country, whose team became the first ever to lose to a 16 versus a 1 last year, who got a, a little bit of a scare uh, from Gardner-Webb, down 14 early, down 6 at the half. Um, that has been, to me the region that I'm having the most difficulty with in picking some and coming out of there. I think that's the region that is really at most up for grabs. I still like Gonzaga in the West, but I, I could see Florida State uh, or Texas Tech. Michigan, I'm not sold on. Uh, I think they have too much trouble scoring, uh, but I could see Tech or Florida State coming out of there, but I, I, I like Gonzaga. Let's take a quick break to pay the bills. He's Al Renato. I'm John Lund. We'll be right back with the new report, old report here on Sports Radio America. We welcome you back. I'm John Lund. He's Al Renato, and this is the new report, old report. The last little tease for to close the Duke-UCF game in speaking of R.J. Barrett. If you watch the last play, he's guarding Aubrey Dawkins, as he did for most of the game. So Trey's guarding the drive. The shot goes up. RJ doesn't move. He watches. He watches right. the ball miss. In the meantime, Aubrey's flown past him going to the basket, puts his hand on the ball to put the tip back. RJ's still standing at the free throw line watching. Yep. He yep. didn't guard he froze. that last he froze. play. He, he, was, he was watching like he was in the stands. Now, he thankfully, froze. it didn't make a difference, but you want to talk about, unfortunately, turning into a goat. Because I was wondering how how is and it would have still been a difficult play because Aubrey had a full head of steam heading to the basket. You're going to have to catch up with them. You might follow them. Who knows what happens? But he he had no one even close to getting in his way for that final putback, which I still can't believe didn't come. I will say for two games to look out for if you want to talk about a one going down in the Sweet Sixteen. I think Virginia Tech's going to give Duke a tough matchup. They did beat them at home, and granted, Zion didn't play, but neither did Justin Robinson for Virginia Tech, and he hasn't really found his footing yet, no pun intended, having that foot injury that had him out for much of the second half of the season. He's back in the lineup, and they're still getting used to having him back. He hasn't really had a great game of the two yet, but now he's got a couple days to prepare. They know what's coming in Duke. They've played them already. Buzz is certainly familiar with them. We could see, as you mentioned, you have these games in the tournament where you get by the skin of your teeth. You come back the next game, you could see Duke win by 2025. It's not even close. Or we could have a close game, and we could have another one like we saw against UCF. I want to write Virginia Tech off quite yet. I, I think they're going to put up 
a pretty good fight, at least in the in the first part of the game. I'm hopeful that, likewise, Duke will be ready for what Virginia Tech will throw at them. It's it, I think Justin Robinson will be the interesting part of that game because they haven't seen him yet. And, you know, he's he's looking to prove himself. He had to sit for a long time. He's ready to be back on the floor. But so is some guy named Zion. So we'll see if that magic can continue because if he has to play the hero role for the rest of the games in the tournament, that's not going to get the win. You, you need those one or two other players to have their impactful games if you're going to reach the Final Four in the National Championship. You just need those. We didn't expect X to do Y games from those role guys. And to this point, we haven't really seen that yet. So maybe that'll be that game. I also think, as you mentioned, Florida State could punch Gonzaga out. I think Gonzaga benefits that they have those extra days to prepare for Florida State. They don't have to play them on a two-day rest period. They get the extra days, so they'll have a little bit more time to figure them out. That's a game I have Florida State winning. I have Gonzaga falling out of the tournament in that game to Florida State. We'll see if that happens. The South region, as you mentioned, I kind of view that as, as a fraud region with uh, Tennessee, as we saw, getting blowing a 25-point lead, getting taken into overtime, having to win against an Iowa team that seemingly was very, very jovial to get into the overtime period, then just started playing hero ball, unfortunately. Gonzaga, or Virginia, we're still waiting to see. We're still waiting to see. And in the region below that, I'm with you. I think it's, it's going to come down to... North Carolina, Kentucky, blue blood battle. We could even see Houston knock Kentucky off. Houston's I could been see playing that. Good basketball. Uh, look, it wouldn't surprise the, me. To cl- see that. Clearly, clearly, the most underrated team in the tournament when it started by people making their picks, and clearly, still the most underrated team in the tournament. Kelvin Sampson has had his trials and tribulations over the years. And I think I'm being kind uh, on that front. However, he has done nothing short of a brilliant reclamation project with the Houston program. Remember, folks, they were a heartbeat away last year, beaten uh, on a last-second bomb. Oh, Just I don't know, it was about 38, 30, 38, 40 feet. You know, the, the Michigan kid. I think his only bucket of the game uh, from the right wing. Uh, they are a very good team. They're not a great team, but they're a very, very good team. And they've been very, very good from game one to the other night. They could beat Kentucky. They could beat Kentucky, especially a Kentucky without Washington. Right. Uh, because, you know, we know that Kentucky struggles to score at times. Not a great shooting team by any means. Strong inside, very athletic. You know, if you can shoot the ball well and rebound and knock down your threes, you are going to give them a snootful because they're not going to go out and, and score 90 points against you by shooting the lights out. That's just not the way they play. They're, they're not built. This Kentucky team is not built that way. Uh, and they don't have their big inside guy. So I think they could give. I think Houston could give the Wildcats a snoot for them. Uh, I still think it's going to be North Carolina and, and Kentucky. Um, 
I, I think it's going to wind up being Tennessee and Virginia. Uh, the West is really the one where I have, you know, the Texas Tech Michigan game. I, I, I like Texas Tech. I think they're playing better. I do too. Um, I think they are going to go to the regional final. Everybody loves Florida State. I like the athleticism. I like the depth. Um, I like how hard they play. Uh, but I just think Gonzaga is a better, more skilled, more versatile offensive team that can beat you more ways. Uh, so I'm going to stick with Gonzaga uh, to come out of that region. And, and I'm going to go uh, with uh, Duke and Gonzaga and Tennessee and uh, North Carolina. I'm sticking with my four original picks. Um, I, I, I'm not sold in, in any way, shape, or form on Tennessee, uh, but I think that they can cause some uh, – some real problems uh, for Duke athletically, or excuse me, for Virginia athletically. Guy has struggled in this tournament. They cannot go to the, they cannot go to the Final Four uh, if he's going to continue to struggle again because we're, we're raising the level of the competition now. It's now turned up a notch, so you're playing better teams. They're not going to win two more games with him shooting blanks from three. It's just not going to happen. I have Texas Tech playing Duke, and I have Virginia facing off against North Carolina. The Tennessee-Virginia game to me was a coin flip. While I don't necessarily think Virginia is a national championship team, flipping the coin went the way of ACC radio. Three in the Final Four would be nice. What is amazing, though, with Virginia is that when that backcourt is hot, like they were against Syracuse, like I've seen them in other games this year. They they are they're not going to lose. Right, exactly. It's just because a matter of who shows because, up because because they're all threes. Right. They right. knock down so many threes, and they knock them down off the dribble. They knock them down from deep. But again, Guy is really the one. He starts that, it. it is the difference maker because he gets that Rick Mount stroke going, right? which I know you're way too young to remember or you have any, probably an idea who Rick Mount is, but one of the great pure shooters of all time, Purdue played against Elsinder his senior year in the finals. Um, you know, Mr. Indiana basketball, Indiana legend. This kid's got a great stroke and form, but as he even said, um, when they lost, um, against Florida State, uh, we struggled against their athletes. Uh, they're big and they're athletic. And that is also what Tennessee is at times. So, and you know, Rick Barnes is a guy, Rick Barnes is a get down and dirty defensive coach. So if they get down and dirty defensively and they are able to shut guy down, I think Virginia will have a very tough time with that game. I have, and I, and I, and I, you know, I don't need zero points. Right. You know, I, I mean, you know, seven, nine points. You know, three for thirteen from three. You know, two for eleven from three. If he knocks down five, six threes, then Tennessee's going to be in trouble. I have Purdue beating Tennessee, so Virginia will be fine. Anyway, Gronkowski. 
He announced his retirement Sunday, and he ended up being completely overshadowed by this basketball tournament. For once, nobody circles the wagons like the National Football League did not apply, and it lost out to college basketball? I'm still shocked. But he announced his retirement, 29 Supposedly spent his entire career living off endorsements so that 60 mil he made in the league is in his pocket. I'm not shocked just based on the last couple seasons and how many whispers there were being. I wish it wasn't the case because only being 29, you think maybe he could throw three or four more years together, but the pounding that his body has taken, the resume that he has as arguably the best tight end of all time, I can't hate the decision. Rob Gronkowski well, ends his career. You know, Drew Rosenhaus is already telling us really the antichrist of, of all agents in all sports. Um, that we, we may be ahead of ourselves here. Uh, don't count him out just yet. Yeah, we, we could have a Roger Clemens is, is in the press little, box. As we get a little further on January. in the offseason, you could, in fact, see Drew. You could, excuse me, you could, in fact, see Gronk uh, be back and, and, and ready to go. I think it's more likely that we're going to see Gronk in the Monday Night Football booth, is what I think. Uh, that's my prediction. You're here first, folks. I think Gronk will test out uh, for that role, and if they like him, he's going to be in your Monday Night booth. I think you can have one tight end in for another. But that's neither here nor there. Look, uh, he has had a not by any means short. Nine years is, is a lifetime in the NFL. But he has been beaten up a great deal because of the position he plays, the way he plays it, and how they use him, and how hard he plays. Decided that nine years of this and the beating that he's taken is enough because he has, whether it's in the Monday Night Football booth, whether it's in the squared circle of wrestling, whether it's in the movies, whatever the case may be, I think he's got many ways to make an awful lot of money without putting himself in harm's way. Yeah, he'll be fine. Because for the past several seasons, he's looked like a tin man that didn't have his oil can around him sometimes running down the field. His body seemingly couldn't keep up with his mind or vice versa, and yet he was still one of the most dominant players in the league. Somebody that you would know was going to get the ball and still somehow found a way to get the ball, which we saw in the most recent Super Bowl. And I don't like the Patriots. I'll never like the Patriots. But I will tell you this. He is a remarkable, absolutely remarkable football player. Real quick, is he the best tight end in NFL history? No. no. You, you, you can't be the best tight end in NFL history when you're, despite your brilliance, when your numbers are dwarfed, and I mean dwarfed, by not a compiling player, but by a player who was so great for so long that his numbers are, are literally, in some cases, almost twice as high, whether it's receptions, yards, years, etc. You know, the greatest tight end of all time is Tony Gonzalez. Now, is, is Tony Gonzalez done things on a football field 
greater than Rob Gronkowski? I don't think so. Has he played games greater than Rob Gronkowski has ever played? I don't think so. But you know, if he wasn't quite as great, but he did it twice as long, he gets the nod. And he didn't have Tom Brady the, as his quarterback. He gets the nod. Absolutely. Or Bill Belichick as his coach. That too. Al, it's always a pleasure. My fingers will be crossed in the upcoming days for a Duke trip to the Final Four and for exciting games along the way. And to have my bracket intact because that's a thing in 2019 to tell everybody how good your bracket is. We'll do it again next week. Folks, this is a guy who is, you know, keeping his fingers crossed for a one seed. He's keeping his fingers crossed for a team that has arguably the greatest recruiting class in the history of the sport. He's keeping his fingers crossed for a club that has two of the top three picks in the coming NBA draft. He's keeping his fingers crossed for a club that, quite frankly, anything short of a NCAA championship is a disappointment. So with that in mind, I guess I have to tell you to keep them crossed. Looking forward to a tremendous late week and weekend of Sweet 16 basketball. Opening day in MLB is coming up. Everybody enjoy your sports week for the great John Tiny Lund. I am Al Renato, a.k.a. Alphaway Plants. Take care, everybody. We'll be back next Monday night, 8 p.m. Eastern time here on Sports Radio America. You can listen at sportsradioamerica.com and interact with the show there as well or find us on the TuneIn app by searching for Sports Radio America. You can also follow John Lund under the same handle on Twitter at London Bridge. Thanks again for listening.